This morning we begin on the theme that will take us through Easter, what the devil wants. Why? Yesterday I was with my parents and my father asked me this very question. How did you decide to preach on the devil? It was about two months ago that I was finishing up a very long Thursday that was filled from start to finish with meetings. My first one was at the coffee shop. I walked to the office for my second. Back to the coffee shop for my third, then on to pizza, obviously, for my lunch meeting. Coffee shop, coffee shop. And then as I walked back, I was struck with the thought that four of the people that I met with were really struggling with the same personal problems. And, and each week they're here, but none of them know each other. And then I realized how much harder it was for each of them because they felt alone in what they were going through. And as I walked, it occurred to me that being isolated as they are, which makes it so much harder, well, isn't that just what the devil wants? I even said that, and I don't talk about the devil a lot. I don't. I don't think about the devil a lot. But when that thought flashed across my mind, it was like suddenly a fast-forward film of all of the meetings that I've had, maybe in the last year or two, where you are struggling with things that undermine your joy, where you're facing problems that you can't rescue yourself from, where you're suffering through loss that's just wrong, where, where troubles are coming upon you that are uncanny in how they seem to be engineered to make you stop following Jesus, it suddenly occurred to me, every one of these feels like the kind of thing that the devil would celebrate. And I wondered, should I preach about that? And then as I got close to the building, I thought, it's the caffeine talking. That's why I'm thinking this. <laughs> and then the next morning, I, I did what I do sometimes, which is I looked at the news And it struck me that despite our collective intentions to make the world a better place, don't you hear those positive slogans about how we're making progress and how we're going to bring about change? Don't you hear them all the time? It struck me that they don't seem to be working. That we find ourselves sinking in conditions that none of us are satisfied with. This is one thing we all agree on, regardless of creed or philosophy or social location, worldview, ideology, politics. We all agree that in definite ways, we are sliding in the wrong direction. Civility feels like a distant memory. Divisions are deepening all the time. Public nastiness, judgment, dismissal of people who you disagree with, that's the norm. Anxiety, loneliness, depression, apathy, disengagement, Addiction are on the rise amongst young people, so they're at epidemic proportions. Gut-wrenching outbursts of senseless violence abound. And by the way, I wrote that sentence on Tuesday. Strapping a camera to your head while you kill people who are praying to God? Is there any word for that that better describes it than diabolical, maybe demonic? Our best attempts... And there are plenty of good attempts out there at defining what's really happening. Don't they all fall short? If you look at the pages of the New Testament and you want to understand Jesus, because don't we want to understand him? You can't get very far before you meet a character called the devil. It's on almost every page of the New Testament. 
the things that vex us when we wonder, why is it going so badly out there? And how come I'm having such a hard time? They're actually not questions that the people in the New Testament grapple with because to them, the answer is obvious. There are powers that are spiritual, which are malevolent, and they're aligned against God and everything good which God does. And I know that. And so as I'm thinking, what should I preach on in the coming months? And this theme occurs to me, I must admit, I'm still hesitant because it feels scary and odd and like maybe people won't like it. And I've never preached on this, even though I've been a pastor for 20 years. Uh, In the middle of February or toward the end, uh, as Jared was preaching, I had a Wednesday where I didn't have to be in my study and a friend from the UK, who you met some of you, Chris Russell, the guy who preached here, uh, who works with the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was in town and the two of us decided to start our day off at Boxwood Coffee. And I asked him, would you give me feedback on what I've been thinking about? I'm planning on maybe preaching on what the devil wants. He looked at me. We stood in line. And before he could give me his thoughts, it was our time to order. I order what I always get. Uh, a, A small hill city, $2.75. Chris ordered a cafe Americano, $3.50. New Jersey sales tax is 6.625%. The woman turns the register around for me to sign, and there is on the screen (laughs) $6.66. That's the... (laughs) You you know how they have that bit there where you choose like your tip? Like $1, $2. I'm always kind of thrifty, but I'm like, no, I'm adding a tip. And I added a tip for $1.11 and turned it into uh, the number, from the number of beasts to the number of promise. <laughs> now, <laughs> you, might think, you might think, well, that's enough, right? No, I- I've always been hyper-skeptical of that kind of thing. I am. I just am. It seems kind of goofy. So Chris and I get on the train to Manhattan, and we're in town, and we're heading uptown, and we're talking about our ministry and our work together, and I'm thinking about you and telling him about why I may be thinking about preaching like this, when there in the subway car, a man stands from his seat and walks right to the center in that kind of confidence that makes you say, as a strap hanger, something's coming here. And he clears his voice and he says with authority, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to hear the word of God. And he's got this glistening, bright, and beautiful smile. And he takes out an old worn Bible and he says, Romans 16, 20. And he reads these words, the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then he adds, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus the Messiah loves you all. And then there's a a woman next to him who seems kind of grumpy and he taps him on the shoulder. You too, (laughs) ma'am. That settled it that it would be time for me to preach on what the devil wants. And so I put myself to the study to try to responsibly treat a subject which certainly has been treated irresponsibly, to sensibly deal with one that has lent itself toward the kind of fanaticism that makes you want to run away from religious people, but one which is unavoidable if you will simply listen to the way that the writers of Scripture and Jesus himself picture the world in which we find ourselves. And so wherever you are on that spectrum of this is, of course, the way life really is, or 
oh, we've, haven't we moved beyond that yet in the 21st century? Don't be so close-minded and open your mind up and see if this doesn't make more sense of the world we live in. This is one statement which captures the worldview of the Apostle Paul, one person who represents the Bible's general answer regarding the question of what is it with all of this darkness? This is Ephesians 6, verse 12. Our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This this statement here represents a central theme, not a secondary or tertiary part of his understanding, but rather a central idea in Paul's way of looking at the world. Life feels like a battle because the whole world is, in fact, engaged in a war, which is raging all around us spiritually. Authorities and rulers, cosmic powers of darkness, forces of evil, which are spiritual in nature, are actively working to undermine everything that is good. Behind the conflicts that hamper God's mission and the well-being of those who are working at following God, Paul was absolutely certain are a host of non-physical spiritual agents who are self-determining, malevolent, and actively fighting against everything which is good. There's a reason why Paul puts this at the end of his letters to the church in Ephesus. In the beginning, he he very simply unfolds for them the good news of the gospel, which leads directly to the wonderful and beautiful mission of the church. And if you are a part of that community that wants to follow Jesus, it's good news for you and a mission for you as well. In God's grace, he decided not to leave the world on its own, but rather in Jesus, he came, he humbled himself, he gave himself to this humiliating death on the cross, which we will consider here together uh, on the Sunday before Easter, but death couldn't hold him down. Instead, he conquered the power of the grave and arose to new life. And with this power, he dwells within those who trust him so that they can move forward as the church altogether in confidence and in courage, being the light in the world that the world needs and and being the love in the world which the love needs because when we find our part in God's plan, then God builds us up through the Spirit so that we love the world as the love wants. That is the mission of the church. That's the mission that we're all invited into, yes? Yes, that's like a different version of amen. Can we try that? Yeah, yes. But now what Paul also knows, which I haven't talked about enough, is that, There are powers and forces at work which, though we can't see them, are real nonetheless, which are aligned against every good thing, every kind deed, every generous act, every bit of patience which you know you should have, every free gift of joy that God wants you to embrace so you can share it with others behind Behind the scenes, but nonetheless real, are these powers which are at work, spiritual in nature, disembodied, and yet capable of influence, aimed ultimately at separating us and everyone from God. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Now, if we pause here for a moment and are honest, don't we have to admit that it is hard for modern people to believe that angels and demons are real? Isn't it? And, and us too, I'm not saying those modern people, but us, the, the idea 
that there are uh, non-physical, semi-autonomous, self-determining, and invisible spirits that exist in the world feels a little bit like being asked to believe in dragons or elves. And I can, I can admit this and say, honestly, even in my earlier years of ministry, that would be my inclination. Uh, reality, uh, since the Enlightenment especially, has, for those of us who are in the West, and almost exclusively for those of us in the West, it has been reduced essentially to a materialistic and a naturalistic understanding of what's real. About 300 years ago, as the Enlightenment worldview really began to gain, gain steam, what happened is those who considered themselves to be the intelligentsia, those who were modern and began to develop, uh, to move away from this old way of knowing, concluded reality is what can be measured with an intelligently designed scientific instrument. And didn't we all learn that in high school, if we've already been there, right? Or you're going to learn it soon, that, that if you get into wanting to know about the world, you look at the pieces through the microscope or whatever it is. Every explanation for why things are as they are should be assessed rationally. Only that which is subject to empirical observation is real, objective, critically tested experimentation, and the data which can be analyzed helps a person distinguish between facts on the one hand and mythical or superstitious beliefs on the other. And this, this mindset, this modernistic material mindset simply has no room at all for cosmic powers or beings which are invisible, disembodied, and yet make things happen in the world. I speak to you from the inside. I studied physics in college. Add to this, I mean, just add to this, isn't it true that it feels a little primitive? You know, didn't we learn at one point that it's germs that make people sick and not evil spirits? Think of how many lives have been saved because of that. You're not asking us to go back on that, are you? And how many times has the, the doctrine of the devil or evil been used by mean religious people to oppress their followers in their naivete and their ignorance, controlling them to do what they want for their own benefit? And, and how about this? Isn't it a convenient way of escaping responsibility for what you've done to just say, ah, the devil made me do it. That's what this really is all about. Why don't we just leave these ignorant ideas in the past? Now, you, you don't have to nod your head or shout amen here, but that sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Oh, someone said amen. <laughs> and let me add this. I'm so glad you said that. Let me add this. Anytime we judge people for having that mindset, we are fools. There are many reasons not to believe. And yet, in the last century especially, since the outbreak of the first, but not the last war of the world, and in the last years and decade in our own country and the world around us, and in the last months in our own country, and, and in this week, even after I prepared this, don't we have a sense that maybe the foolish idea is that there's not evil behind all of this ugliness and barbarity that has driven our best minds to their wits end to find some kind of explanation. Do you think maybe it's harder not to believe in the reality of evil? And if you feel superior because you're saying, yes, I know, don't feel that. But, but listen now, the amount and intensity and depth of human barbarity in the world speaks more loudly than anything to the contrary of the existence of some kind of malevolent 
powerful, evil, spiritual force, which though disembodied and invisible, no matter what name you give it, is all too real. Listen to this description of Germany that was written in the early 1940s. This is a quote. One man who is obviously possessed has infected a whole nation. Do you know who that's referring to? A god has taken possession of the Germans. A hurricane has broken loose in Germany while we still believe it's fine weather. Those are not the words of a preacher. That was Carl Jung, one of the preeminent fathers of psychotherapy, a secularist who looked at what was happening and said, our best understanding of humanity can't reach deep enough to name this malevolence. After two wars, after the, the, the diabolical wickedness of genocide, the mass murder of children and their families because they descended from Abraham. Many intelligent and sober-minded people in the West are ready to abandon their former enlightened objection to the existence of a power of darkness and are prepared to believe in the reality of evil forces. Spiritual beings, the devil, Satan, whatever name you use, this War that is not of flesh and blood, but rather of the principalities and powers. Now, whatever my misgivings in treating this subject, and, and there are a host of them, I'm convinced that be, to be a responsible pastor with and for you, it is my responsibility to simply and, and with a sober-minded clarity present the way that the Bible conceives of the reality in which we find ourselves. And Paul's statement that our battle is not against flesh and blood is balanced with other teaching which is very plain and gives us an understanding of how to think about the reality of evil, which if we open our minds to it, I'm convinced we'll do two things. First, present a much better understanding of what's happening in the world. And if you don't agree with me, that's okay. But secondly, Adopt a new approach to these days, which will protect us and enable us to be the light which the world needs. And we all know the world needs that. If we come back to Paul's statements in Ephesians at the end of this letter, in verses 10 and 11, in these two verses, there are five big ideas that we can hold on to about the reality of the devil that will help us now and all the way to Eastern. Here, look at the words that he writes there. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Here in this instruction, in this guidance which Paul gives to help those who are going to need help because of life's challenges and the journey, the first big idea, which is obvious, is that in Paul's mind, the devil is real. Uh, Paul identifies a genuine spiritual being when he names the devil, a not a mythical element of a primitive worldview that can be dispensed with, not a figure of imagination made up to scare people, not a man dressed in red tights with horns and a pitchfork who's promising to help a guy write hit songs on Saturday Night Live. Anybody else? Will Farrell? right? Do you know that skit? That's not the devil. I love that skit. Um, but rather a created spiritual being made by God to serve him, just as all of God's messengers 
angels, the heavenly hosts were made to protect those who were at work following God, but he and others with him have rebelled and fallen, and now in every way they can are aligned against God and what's good. The Bible, through, from the very beginning, the Old Testament, all the way through the New, depicts the existence of a heavenly host that was made by God for good, with genuine freedom, who have been given the responsibility to carry out God's uh, designs, but instead in their rebellion have turned away. And now the devil is the one who occupies a position of authority within this disobedient host. Uh, if you think, well, maybe this is just Paul. No, if you try to understand Jesus' life and you read his very first moment of ministry after getting baptized is to go into the wilderness where for 40 days he interacts with the devil. And all through his ministry, you see it. In the lives of men and women who are suffering, it is the demons, it is Beelzebub, it is the powers of darkness, the ruler of the air that are at work to bring about misery and suffering. And then even to the end of his story, you see that Satan is at work moving Jesus to the cross. The consistent view of Jesus and his followers is that Satan Beelzebub, the deceiver, the father of lies, you hear how many names there are, is real. That's number one. Uh, but there is a second idea here, which is equally important and which I am eager to give to you because one of the reasons I'm hesitant to treat this subject is the thought that maybe some of you will be afraid. Uh, do you know that the most frequently quoted command in all of the Bible is God's command, do not fear? Uh, though real, this is the second big idea, the devil is defeated. Not will be, but is defeated. We give too much to the devil if we imagine that he has the power which is equal but opposite to God's, as if he exists autonomously and may actually get the upper hand in the end or even now. Not true. Compared to the power of God, the power that Satan has is nothing. Like the power that the monster under the bed has on your child when she imagines it's real, but it's not really capable of anything. Because in fact, God's power is immeasurably greater than Satan's, which is why here uh, Paul suggests that you should, look, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his power. For Paul, and in his mind, God's power is incomparably stronger. Consider the story of Easter, which we will do together at the end of April. The devil got his way on Good Friday with the death of Jesus, but then but then what he didn't understand is his victory over Jesus was actually his own undoing by causing those conditions which shattered the bars of hell and caused every one of us to be absolutely and utterly free to walk away from the power of evil now and forevermore. I heard one amen and inside I'm singing. <laughs> Paul says this earlier in the letter to Ephesians. Listen to how he describes what God did when he used his power to raise Christ from the dead. God has put all things under Jesus' feet and has made him the head over all things. The devil is one thing which right now is under Jesus' feet. To use a different biblical image, the devil has been bound by God's victory like a strong man who's been tied up so that those who are strong, listen, not in their own power, but in the power of the Lord, which is freely and benevolently and graciously given to all of us, have absolutely nothing at all ultimately to worry about. So that begs the question, then why all of this misery still? Well, here's the third big idea, and it's true. 
It is that though defeated, the devil is still active nonetheless. Like a man who is mortally wounded and in his death throes is doing everything he is capable of to inflict maximum damage. That's the reality in which we find ourselves. Though we live, listen now, in a time where the future for him is absolutely settled and completely certain, which is that one day he will be utterly crushed altogether and forever, not even a memory, wiped away from even that between now and that distant time, now we do actually find ourselves in a spiritual battle in which he and those he commands are aligned against us to make it hard for us in every way. How? To make us not trust each other. How? To turn us into mean people when we should be kind. How? To tempt us into thinking that Christians should divide up from other Christians when they disagree about these things. To make us judge the people around us and feel quite good when we do so, imagining that Jesus is on our side. And in many, many other ways is he active. Listen to this list from scripture. He is a roaring lion who prowls around to devour. Those are the words of Peter. Peter wrote that because he knew in his own life there were times where he was devoured. He tempts people to sin. He's the deceiver who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Have you ever talked to someone who doesn't believe and it's like there's a veil over their mind that you could never get through? Here, yes, the, 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 the devil blinds those minds. He and his legions are behind false teaching in the church. He discourages Christians and entraps church leaders. He establishes strongholds which confuse the minds of believers. These are only some of the ways that scripture describes the devil's continuous activity even up until this day, but now please listen again. You do not need to be afraid. And I want to be very clear about this. You do not need to be afraid because you have enough power. You haven't. But rather, you do not need to be afraid because in the power which God freely and joyfully and exuberantly lends to us, God can't wait for me to get this sermon out and the ones that are coming. In, in that power, the devil is completely resistible. And that's the fourth thing. So that anyone who says the devil made me do it is also a liar. Now, of course, he is constantly going to be at work inclining us against what is good. And if right now you're thinking, I'm sorry, I'm too much a product of the enlightenment. I can't believe in this stuff. Fine, go on not believing. Don't let that be another one of the devil's subtle tricks to make it so that you're so vulnerable and try these on anyway. And I mean it. Because he wants you not to believe in him or he wants you to believe in him too much. But he's resistible in the strength which God has given, which is why here Paul also adds, look at it, stand, where is it? Sorry, resistible, put on the whole armor of God. The armor that Paul names here would have immediately evoked a visual image that was well known to the recipients of this letter. That is the equipment that a Roman soldier wears when he is preparing for battle. Our responsibility is to take up what he has supplied. Paul describes God's armor 
uh, down in verses 14 and following, but it's vivid and it's clear that none of us ever has to go forward without the equipment that we need to be defended against whatever the enemy will put against us. The first bit of armor, the belt of truth around your waist. Here, he wants you to envision something that covers the lower abdomen and it's truth to protect you from the lies that no doubt the enemy will fling against you. How many times have you suffered because a lie sounded like the truth in your ears? God's given us what we need in the truth to be defended against that. The breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness is walking on the right path. The reason when you're walking on the right path, you need protection. Something covering your heart and your entire self here is because the moment you start to walk on the right path, go in the direction that God wants you to, you should expect that the enemy will come against you to try to undo whatever good God wants you to do. Has anyone in here ever experienced that? Everything was so easy until we tried to do the right thing. And then it was like this uncanny resistance came against us. What's going on here? Is it that we're not trying hard enough? No, Paul says it's because there's an enemy. But you've got what you need, and it's the right path. This is amazing. Paul says, put shoes on your feet for whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Not argue for the truth of the gospel, not define it or explain it, but rather just proclaim the gospel of, notice, not war, but rather peace. That is that you can go forth into the world with a confidence to say, no, in Christ, God has conquered Satan and the power of evil, and his love is for every single person. Not only some, but everyone. And I can stand firm in the confidence of that and declare it and be sure that in God's might and power, there will be a day when all evil is vanquished and gone forever. And between now and then, what can anyone do against me because God is for me? Even if I have to give up my life, so be it. That is the strength of the armor that God gives us. He adds, with all of these, the shield of faith with which you can, uh, with which you can quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. By the way, notice the, the equipment is all defensive, that we're not invited uh, to resist the devil with our own arrows and firing them. Have you ever fired arrows at someone? It's not our job but rather to with everything we need in faith that is trusting Jesus to be able to stand against whatever the enemy throws our way. And then the helmet of salvation to protect our minds and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which in each and every moment is ready to declare to us just what we need to hear. Can I say a few of those words? Listen, do not be overcome by evil. I'm thinking about what happened in New Zealand. Don't be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. I shouldn't have said what happened in, in New Zealand, what was done in New Zealand. Don't be overcome by evil. Don't become a person who hates. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. That's God's word. And it's a sword against the enemy. You know, angel is the word for messenger. And, and we're not meant only to believe that there are powers of evil out there against us, but there are powers of good that are at every moment ready to minister to and care for and lead us. And it, it, can, it, it struck me at, at the first service this morning that maybe that fellow on the subway was in fact an angel sent by God with God's own word to declare it to me. Never mind that he didn't look like a fat, naked, white baby with harp and wings. He was a, a very strong and firm man who declared the truth. And God's word is also that for us. 
And so you must not believe that the devil is irresistible. He is 100% and completely resistible. And then one more thing about him, and this will uh, be the last thing we consider this morning. The devil is sneaky. And I use a word that, that sounds a little, maybe a little bit too light, because we should not ever treat him as if he's an authority that we need to be afraid of or of whom we cannot make fun. And I say it also because the Greek word there, the wiles of the devil, in Greek is methodia. That's where our English word methods come from. In Greek, it always had a negative connotation. It meant something like schemes or strategies which have a nefarious purpose which are inclined against what is good and are subversive. They're buried. They're not honest. They're deceitful through and through. And so Paul would say in another place, the angel, uh, excuse me, the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. And so of course he doesn't come showing his hand too strongly. If you think, okay, I guess I'm supposed to be ready for some kind of paranormal activity like that movie Poltergeist, head spinning and stuff shooting everywhere. No, the devil's not that obvious. Uh, But in fact, it will be in subtle ways that over and over again, we'll be faced with this reality, which is malevolent, which is designed and active to be against us, even though it is defeated from which we can defend ourselves, but nonetheless, which will be subversive, which will not occur to us, which will feel like, yeah, I guess that's the right thing. For instance, like hate growing in your heart. Or like this, like comfort. And by the way, that's the theme for next week. What the devil wants is to make us comfortable enough so we don't do anything. To make us comfortable enough so we never achieve the potential that God put in us. To make us comfortable enough not to stand and say no, or to be courageous and move forward. And by the way, some of you are feeling now, he must be far away from me because I'm awfully uncomfortable. (laughs) But no, God has for every one of us, for every one of us, this joy and this Uh, I would even go so far as to say exuberance that we would be a community that discovers the truth that there are enemies that are aligned against us and this world around us, but not so that we're afraid at all, but so that we're more cunning still than even the devil and all his schemes so that when he tries to undermine you personally, you're able to stand and say no. So that when he comes in here, and tries to divide us up from each other, we're able to say, no, 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 that's not how it's going to work at Renaissance Church. When he tries to turn us into his own agent in whatever clever way he can, we're able to say, absolutely not. And so that you and I altogether are able to be completely unafraid because the truth is the devil's defeated and the God is with us right now. Listen to what God himself says through the prophet Isaiah. And this is Isaiah 41.10. And I leave this with you and I ask you to consider committing this to memory. So if you're a note taker, write this down. Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the great and glorious promise of your continued presence and strength for us. We thank you that even though we find ourselves swallowed up 
In this present darkness, we are nonetheless given a light through your own goodness, your own presence with us, which shines darker than, as shines brighter than any light ever could, and the darkness cannot overcome it. We thank you that you promised to give us your power and your strength, that you will uphold us with your mighty hand. We thank you that your victory over death, which we remember each year at Easter, is true for us even now, so that you are a power with us which is greater than any other power, and that even as the devil himself is still working now, we ourselves in your power are able to overcome, to stand, to be strong, to break free and become your agents of goodness and light in this world which is still captive to the prince of the power of this air. Would you help us become agents that go out and bring others into your glorious goodness? Would you help us be strong and potent signs of your love which is stronger than death? And would you help us overcome evil with good? And we pray for this in the name of Jesus who in his death and resurrection has conquered the devil forever. In his name we pray, amen.